0: So welcome everybody to the Women in Family Law podcast and today I'm joined by Daniel Eames, partner at Mitchell Moores, um, fantastic international lawyer who really has made his mark um, chairing the International Committee of Resolution and becoming uh, has become a real authority in relation to Brexit. So great to um, be with you this morning, Daniel.
1: Hi, Daniel, yeah, great to be here.
0: So just starting at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, why did you become a family lawyer?
1: Um, I had a good friend of my father's who very kindly, when I was looking to do work experience when I was about 14, 15, very kindly took um, me to work with his firm for a for a week in in Gloucester in Gloucester. And I just absolutely loved it. And ever since then I wanted to be a you know a, a lawyer and and he was a family lawyer as well so he was sort of my sort of initial inspiration but obviously as time's gone on there have been others who you know when i was doing my training contract um, who really inspired me to want to be a family lawyer um i think back to um my sort of training principal who was ellie chapman at anthony gold who was a real really class act and she, she was Wonderful to work for, and a great teacher, and so I really enjoyed my time with her. And of course, Susanna and I came on to work with you, which was again another inspiration, another female figure who sort of inspired me to become a, you know, the the family law I've become. And you had a very different style to uh, Ellie, but the, the, the two, the sort of the, the two styles I've got, I've tried to mould into a style of my own. But yeah, I'm sort of very grateful to those early role models.
0: Brilliant I remember it well those were the days my friend I thought they'd never end yeah. and we um, worked together and, and that's when I think you first became interested in international family law isn't it?
1: Yeah it was although my uh, the, the the reason I was interested in it obviously you were doing a lot of interesting international work you and I'd worked on some really complicated prenups I remember doing with some US cases and a, a Danish one I remember us doing but I'd actually, my interest in international work had come from my previous firms. So although I was working with Ellie doing family work, I had a brief interim period where I was working on a really complicated um, international piece of litigation involving a Czech brewery. And I was so fortunate. I, I was going to Prague once a month working with foreign lawyers there. So that was the interest, just seeing how our systems interacted. I also got to go to New York I didn't get to go to the Cayman Islands, that was another part of the case, but they wouldn't let me go. But that just, it interested me how two legal systems interacted. And because this was a case involving a Japanese bank in England and then a Czech brewery. And so that's, that's where my interest came from. And then when I started working with you, I hadn't really had any exposure to international family work at that stage, but we then developed it from there. And if you recall, in those days this was sort of early 2000s there weren't that many international cases not not like now where there's you know so many foreign nationals obviously moved here from the eu over time and that's obviously increased the amount of international work but in those early days there wasn't that much i think if you remember but it's really grown and so you know obviously that opportunities i had with you to get my teeth into international work was was where i started
0: and so can you um think about any sort of one or two examples of cases that you've done that have really stuck in your mind, perhaps, you know, anonymizing them appropriately so we don't give any details away, but anything that you remember thinking, wow, that was a real highlight of my career.
1: Well, I I, I certainly think of the one one that you and I did involving uh, a Russian. Well she wasn't she wasn't Russian, was she? She was from one of the ex USSR states. Um, and it was an interesting case because the husband was Canadian, I think, and he was a non-discloser. And I think we had to get a freezing order against him and we had Nick Francis QC involved. But the really interesting legal point in that is we had double bigamy, didn't we? We had
0: we
1: Both of them were alleged to have been married previously and shouldn't have been in a position to remarry. And so that was a really interesting legal point on top of all the other complications. And I remember... I remember going to her. There was a property in Mayfair that I had to go and look at, and there was all her leech vases and things. I remember that very strongly. That was that was a really, yeah, that was a great case and uh, really cut my teeth and a real a, a good experience to work very closely with the QC, which you, which as a junior you don't often get. But that you know, that was a great experience. I
0: think yes, I other- remember the the phrase that comes to me from that case was in fact very relevant today in our virtual world. And that was that she asked me if I could defrost her husband. And I say <laughs> that in a virtual world because obviously people are always freezing on Zoom. And that's my catchphrase. I think it's time for us to defrost you. Um, and that always makes me laugh whenever I think about that. Um,
1: and then I, I mean, another great case, which, I, which I'm which i not gonna mention because even just to talk about it would give it away, but I another one i've had was a a chinese case um, which was after i left you which was in the high court and the wife in that situation was effectively pulling the strings um on behalf of the family company but she was trying to pretend that her mother was was running the company and we had this hilarious hearing um in the high court where there was a translator and I think the translator was wasn't the best translator in the world, and he was really summarising what was being said rather than doing it verbatim, which meant that, that the power of the other side's cross examination sort of fell apart because they were sitting in a in a room somewhere in China, drinking tea, eating their sandwiches. It was just it was just way too relaxed for them, and so there were lots of points that my client could have been caught out on, but got away with it because of this very poor translation. So that was a, that was another case, sort of, sort of sticks in the mind.
0: So, so looking back to the beginning what are the biggest changes that you've seen since you started practicing family law?
1: I think I mean it may just be um, the sort of cases I've had but I, I do think it's more to do with the climate that um, if I think about my work that I did with Ellie and then the work that I did with you i could probably count on the fingers of one hand how many final hearings i went to and that may be because of the sorts of lawyers that that you two were that you tried to resolve things and cut through them and look at you know alternative dispute resolution and ways of trying to resolve things but i do think it has become a lot more litigious and i can think of a a summer perhaps two or three years ago where i had five or six final hearings in a summer just in the summer holidays which you know as i say from my previous 10 years before that, I'd had maybe five final hearings on that time. So I do think it has become, despite everybody's attempts and you know, yours in particular, sort of things like arbitration and mediation to try and push those forward. If people aren't in that medium, then I found that cases have become an awful lot more litigious in the last. I,
0: I think I agree. I think that they're now on the extremes. We've got a more polarised yeah. uh, platform, as it were. People who are, uh, you know, self referers or easily adapt into mediation arbitration and then if you don't have that many more cases being super litigious and going to final hearing and not many in the middle so quite no
1: there there aren't and you don't just get you know I think we have moved away from the idea that everybody has a lawyer that that we we moved away from that and so either as you say they're going down a a, you know dispute resolution model alternative model where they're trying to be cooperative or you go down a highly litigious model and the rest, you know, either don't use us or use us in a very limited way or they get lots of information themselves. But, uh, you know, I, I'm i sorry to say that I I find that even if my clients, you know, it's very rare that I get a couple where both of them are nice and want to cooperate. It, it, either one of them is very, very difficult or, or they have some mental, I, I, just the cases I have are just you know, crazy. Just you know, I've had... I've had so many cases where we've had final hearings adjourned or you know had to, you know, two or three attempts at a final hearing, which as I say, was just unheard of 10, 15 years ago. Uh,
0: and what do you think about the virtual world and how you're coping with that and whether or not we will go back to offices as we knew them?
1: No, I I don't think we will. I mean, I, I miss it. I, I liked, you know, I think again just Going back to how we worked as a team, you know, two or three of us in an office together, working off each other, listening to what we were all doing, you know, working collaboratively. I just think that unfortunately, we won't go back to that. And I've changed, as you know, changed firms in the last 12 months. Some of my new clients I've not even met. I've got colleagues, I've got a, a new colleague in my London office, and I've met her three times, and two of those times were before I joined. And so I do think that the way law firms, certainly big firms like mine and and yours, I suspect, they are looking to cut down on costs. And we're already looking at flexible working, weren't we? Not having your own desk. And I just think that the costs of um, offices in London and uh, and the like, people are going to try and avoid those costs. That's what I feel about it. And um, it's going to be interesting to see whether hourly rates and things come down because of it because i think with the exception of a few stellar names in london you wonder whether clients will feel the need to have a london lawyer anymore because it can be dealt with remotely outside of london at at a lower cost and i think that's going to be the big change i also don't think i don't think we're going to go back to hearings in person maybe final hearings fdrs but i think all directions hearings now will be dealt with like this don't you
0: yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it will change dramatically. And I think people have become much more cost conscious. So I think there will be a move towards fixed fees, which I think is difficult in mm-hmm. family law, because to a certain extent, you the client creates some of the work themselves mm-hmm. and therefore the way they deal with the case impacts the fees. But I think there will be a real push to that in the way that there have been in other areas of law. And we'll see quite a significant change in that way in the future as well. So lots to think about. but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I
1: mean, You can see from the client's perspective how this new model works with remote hearings because you don't have the time waiting around at court. You can work on other things while you're waiting for your link to come through or for that telephone call. And of course, you could have done that when you're with your client. But it would seem very rude to be looking at your phone or your laptop when you should be speaking to them. So I think from the client's perspective, it's more efficient. I found anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I suppose um, just in the recent past, looking at changes, we've had um, literally at the beginning of this year, Brexit and all that surrounded that. And I just, I know you've been very involved uh, with resolution and you've written various papers and you've lectured, but I just wondered if you wanted to just distill relatively briefly the sort of key points as far as you're concerned, where we're at now and where we may be.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think the key point is uncertainty. So although in the past the, 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 the use of European regulations could, could result in unfair outcomes, because as you know, it was all a question of who issued first. If you, if you issued your case first, then it would be dealt with in the court that you wanted it to be dealt with. And so that provided certainty for clients. It could provide unfair outcomes, but it did give certainty. And the real problem now is that we are going to have in respect of divorce proceedings and financial claims arising from those divorce proceedings, the the very real prospect of competing proceedings where one person starts their proceedings in France, the other person starts in England, and there is no regime to decide which of those courts takes priority. So clients are going to not only have the cost of you know, the normal costs of divorce and how the court determines their financial um, uh, claims, but they're also going to have additional costs in another jurisdiction. And then worst of all worlds is that at the end of it, even if they get the outcome that they want in the jurisdiction that they want, it may not then be enforceable in the other country. So it, 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 you know, we, we, we can all see the problems with the the EU system, but it, it did provide certainty and, and, and a way of regulating these cases that, that has been lost. And we did try very hard with the government to try and make them understand that whilst we might all have our own political views about whether it was appropriate that we'd be regulated in this way by um, Brussels, in family law it was very different. We applied our own law. We always applied English law, and this system just avoided conflicts and competition whatever people's political views are about whether it was appropriate that laws and rules were created in brussels and whether that impacted on our sovereignty what we tried to persuade the government is that that wasn't the same case in 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 family law we always applied our own law and this was just a way of avoiding conflict and complete and competing proceedings but although the civil servants themselves were broadly on board with what we were saying. There was just a clear red line from the very top from the key players in the government who just said that they couldn't make an exception for family law, which is a real shame because it it is going to affect British nationals more than anybody else. It's British nationals who are going to have um, these cases. You know, London is the sort of divorce capital of the world. And so these cases are gonna carry on. We're still gonna have all these cases in London but what we're going to have is an additional layer of cost for clients when they're going to have a, an additional hearing about whether the case should be dealt with in London or, or in another court, and so, that can't be good for the families and children, and so it's a real shame that we couldn't persuade them of that. Um, there is a bit of hope on the horizon. One of the issues that that will assist things is if. Um, if the government can persuade the, the rest of the EU to sign up to the Logano Convention without getting too technical, that is just a way, again, of just deciding which country deals with the maintenance claim. And if that happens, and it looks like it's going to happen, I and mean, it was disappointing that they weren't able to tie it in with the trade negotiations and get it in by the end of the year. But if that does come in in the next six months, then that will alleviate some of the difficulties and that will be a positive step but you know i do i do see regardless of that an increase in in costs and, and, and competing proceedings for clients
0: yeah thanks for that and and apart from that do you have any other thoughts about other future developments in family law or international cases in particular
1: um I mean i do i do i, I do think that certainly in England and i would say probably some of the um, some of the US states like New York, I do think that we have really embraced the technology here and I do, I, you know, I do feel as we talked about earlier that uh, on, on cases that there is going to be more use of video technology which will help in international cases. So, you know, the, the idea of someone coming over to this country to give evidence, um, the ability to deal with that in a more cost efficient way. So although I'm saying that there will be additional costs, I think some of the um, progress that we've made in this country uh, and, and other countries in terms of using technology will help with keeping down costs in international cases. Um, I still hope that um, you know arbitration will continue to grow in this jurisdiction. I do think that's a, you know that's been a great development, and I, I know that um, the, the uptake in training has been quite strong on that. And so I do feel that um, arbitration is. It's something that's going to be used more and more. And I hope in in international cases as well, because the court system, as you know, is gearing up, I think, now to try and make it as difficult for lawyers and clients to use that system. And um, they are trying to sort of force us by having a pretty (laughs) inefficient system to try and use other models to resolve things. So that is definitely the way. And, And arbitration is. I think is a good way because it, it allows those cases which are where there are points of dispute that need someone to make a determination it, it is a way of trying to deal with those types of cases and and so it, it you know it does serve as a useful replacement for the court which i think is you know, positive but as you know trying to predict what else might happen is impossible isn't it i mean who, who, could, have predict, who could have predicted where we are today
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And this almost seems like a bizarre question where we are today. But, um, well, I suppose not. I mean, I think it's always important to try and have a work-life balance and probably no more so than now where we're at home working and it's so easy To just switch on your laptop and stay on your laptop all day without really moving so I just wondered from your point of view if there are any sort of well-being top tips or work-life balance or whether you're going to confess that you're really rubbish at that.
1: I am really rubbish at that I I am the person that should be turning off their laptop but finds they're on their laptop all evening I think what it's allowed me to do is be a bit more flexible about when I do things so if I you know, if I want to go off and do something I don't feel guilty about it because the way we're working at the moment means you can work again in the evenings or and clients I think I'm not it's not as strong as it was at the start I don't know if you remember at the start that people almost forgot what day of the week it was and yeah just you know people be phoning you in the evenings at weekends as if you know there wasn't a normal sort of nine to five so I think although I'm struggling with it in terms of being disciplined, it, 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 I am. I am enjoying, to a degree, the flexibility that um, no one's expecting you to be working particular hours. That you can work, you can fit your work around other aspects of your life. But it, it is, it is difficult. And I, I suppose I'm, I'm not quite burying my head in the sand, but I am sort of from that school of well, I've just got to get through the next month or two, and I'm hoping that some, some sort of normality will return. But no, I don't have. I haven't sort of taken up a new hobby or. Come up with some particular sort of well-being element to get through is I just think it's just my natural approach to things I just get on with them and just you know I can see I can see so I can see a brighter horizon ahead of me I think that's that's the only way I think I get through it
0: I think that's true I think that um, everybody has to do it in their own way whatever way that is but to have a sort of beacon of hope in these rather dismal times as we see the news or possibly some people have now got to the point where they can't bear watching the news anymore. Um, So as to sort of take us forward to to the next stage, I think hopefully taking with us some of the positive points that we've learned during that time, whether that be about ourselves or about how we work or our lives or what's important or what's not important, I think really interesting and it will be very interesting to see what the new the next society is like and what lessons we've learned
1: yeah i mean i i, I don't know about you but i feel sorry for those that are just starting their career in, yeah. in law i think that that benefit that I've had that I talked about at the very start where you were working alongside someone you were listening to someone who was more experienced and you and you just learned by osmosis and that that's the bit that i've you know for me as a a senior lawyer who knows how they want to work, how they want to do things. It doesn't impact me as much. But I think for junior lawyers, it's a really, really difficult time. And you know, for us to try and pass on what we know and our knowledge and try and teach them from experience, it's much more difficult to do that.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, I can put a plug in here for the fact that the Women in Family Law have started a mentoring scheme and I've just been doing some mentoring with my mentee this week, and it's been so rewarding and really interesting. I think it's incumbent on us senior lawyers to do that, to sort of pass on some of the knowledge. And thinking of that, I've just, I suppose, a question. What would you tell your younger self about work? What would you retrospectively look back and think, I wish I'd known that, or I wish I'd understood that about the world of work?
1: Um. I don't, I, 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 I'm not one for regrets or looking back, I don't think. I think I, I've, I've really enjoyed the work that I do. As I said to you, I, I, I wonder if I'd have embarked on this career now as a junior because I think, I think what you learn and what you experience as a family lawyer in those early years is you learn to become more detached and learn how to, to, to understand what a client needs, what they don't need, and I feel that, as I said to you, with the, the more litigious cases, I think if that had been my diet at the very start, I think I've found it very, very depressing. So I think I've been lucky. I think is how I would see. It. I think I would say I've been lucky that I trained and learned and started my work when I did. And I think that um, all I can really try and do with others is try and encourage them and, and make them love family work in a way that I love it and try and get them to understand the technical side of things and you know just just the enjoyment of of understanding other people's lives and how their you know how their financial situations differ from others that's the bit I enjoy about the work but I think if you're when you've got those very highly stressed clients calling you up and often it's the junior who has to field those calls I think that if that's your daily diet it's quite difficult I think
0: um absolutely I that, think some some may say that family lawyers enjoy it for as a sort of type of wirism or being incredibly no, nosy to see other people's lives but I but I think it's often a real deep sense of sympathy empathy wanting to do the right thing I don't know what you think yeah I,
1: I think I mean there is that element of it and you know some of the stories we talked about earlier that you know just the sort of the way human nature works that is intrinsically interesting isn't it and you know little tidbits and they say the voyeurism aspect of it but i think what i really enjoy and i think probably you do as well is, is is it's trying to find solutions that's the bit that i enjoy the most it's looking at a set of facts looking at this client situation try, and trying to come up with a tailored solution to just trying to find a resolution and that is the bit that i enjoy most it's not the the gossip or you know what's going on in that person's life I've never found that very I always found it very odd when you, know, you, you think about when you draft a divorce petition and there's some lawyers who like to really get to the very detail yeah, of
0: what's going same. on in
1: someone's lives and, you, and they don't want to go into that it's it's not helpful for anybody to do it and I've never I've never enjoyed that side of it it's it's the this is the situation how, how can I come up with a solution that someone else hasn't thought of or how do I find a way through this that's the bit that I I really enjoy.
0: Yeah. The thing I think I've learned from listening to you, Daniel, which I knew all along, but is absolutely at the forefront of my mind, is that you're totally passionate about family law. And that's a great thing to hear. And actually, I think very inspiring for people who want to go into this area of law to listen to you talk about it and your obvious enthusiasm about what you do. So thanks very much for being my guest today. It's been great talking to you. And you. Thanks, Susan.